Overflow Beyond the Music is a podcast hosted by musician and pastor Josh McCabe and takes a deep dive into the life of artists into topics of faith, family, and seasons of struggle. This podcast is presented by Overflow Ministries Group. For more information about Overflow Ministries Group, visit overflowgroup.org. All right, well, this is a little bittersweet for me today. Um, This is Welcome to Overflow Beyond the Music. I am your host, Josh McCabe. Thanks so much for being here and listening to this episode, but this is my last episode. And it's crazy to think about because when this thing started, I really, I don't know, we were just going to do a couple episodes and see what happened. And and here we are finishing up, I think, a fifth season. And I want to say, I don't know, close to like 45, uh, 48 episodes, something like that. Had no idea what this would look like or or what this journey would be, and it's really just been a blessing. And I, I can't thank you guys enough for listening, for being a part of this episode, for listening to all the other episodes. We've had great, great guests in this time of, of, of doing this podcast, and you know, I'm really hoping it doesn't end. I hope that uh, you know the ministry can keep going and, and this podcast can somehow happen in in a way, shape, or form, whatever that looks like. I don't know, but um, I know that that for me, there's just been so many changes in my life and so many things going on, uh, just personally with with myself, my family, my my role here in Canada, and, and doing worship, and really just trying to discover what what God does have and and you know, for no other reason other than I just really felt like God saying that that this season for me was closing. I just really have to be obedient in that. And it, it's, it sucks in a way because I, I really love doing this. Like, I love doing the interviews. I love doing the podcast. I love the team. I love um, Jeff. I love Kevin. I love Jackie. And in the early days, I loved working with Anthony too. And um, just, I'm so, so thankful for this ministry, for Overflow Ministries Group, for investing in, in my life and in my, my vision for this podcast, investing in, in you guys and investing in the artists. Uh, we've had everyone from, you know, we started with Trevor McNeven of TFK and we've had, um, you know, Stephen Christian of Amber Lynn. We've had Paul and Hannah McClure twice now, Josh Baldwin, Brian Johnson, some of the Bethel music crew that's been on. Um, we've, Gosh, Zach Williams, uh, mentioned like all male guests. Um, we had Chris and Jody from Love and the Outcome, which was killer. We recently just had the Ginny Owens podcast. If you haven't heard that one yet, make sure you go check that out. Uh, you, you'll really, really enjoy enjoy that particular episode. I really, really enjoyed doing that one. Ginny Owens is, um, she's a gem. She's awesome. You really will enjoy the episode. Um, I'm trying to think of what other highlights oh riley clemens riley clemens was she was such a sweetheart she's so kind so nice so fun uh that was one of my favorite episodes was was riley clemens and you know i just am thinking about all the great things we've talked about and all the great conversations that have been had in this journey i really really hope people have been encouraged by getting to know the person behind the music getting to know who these people are beyond the songs that they put out that you get to listen to. Because I, I truly believe if you get to know who they are and get to know their journey, the songs come to life in a whole new way. And that's been my favorite part, is seeing 
um, the songs speak to me in, in a different way when you get to know the journey and get to know the people. And, and that's really the heart behind why we did this. I'm thankful in so many ways uh, to Overflow Ministries Group. And, and if you have not checked out what they're doing, please go to Overflow group.org that's overflowgroup.org and they're doing some really cool stuff i just saw a post recently on on kevin who's the ceo's facebook page about some stuff they're doing with overcoming um overcomers caring ministries in um in africa and you will absolutely be touched by some of the work that they're doing to bring technology into some of these rural rural parts and just helping people in in really practical ways with technology so Make sure you check them out, overflowgroup.org. Um, but again, a huge thanks to Kevin Birch, uh, the head, the, the head honcho, the boss man here at Overflow Ministries Group. I want to thank you for believing in this and allowing this, this vision to take shape and, and it being really a highlight of the last couple of years of my life. So thank you for that. Thank you to Jackie and Jeff, who have really stepped in on the admin side in this season. Um, thank you to Mary who was involved in some of the admin and some of the um, social media stuff for a bit. And Anthony as well, who was involved in that. I can't thank you guys enough. I love you guys all dearly. I love all you guys as listeners dearly. Please. um, I'd love to stay in touch with you. If you want to follow me on Instagram, it's Josh McCaves. That's J O S H M C a V E S. It's a play on my music project called cave. So Josh McCaves is where you'll find me please check that out or you can find me caves music on instagram but my last guest with me as the host is my good friend elias dummer so as we go into the interview this is the song enough from elias dummer my name is josh mccabe this is overflow beyond the music Hey, what's going on, everybody? Welcome back to the podcast, Overflow Beyond the Music. Josh McCabe here, and I am coming to you uh, from Guelph, Ontario, which is just a little bit down the road from Hamilton Waterdown, Ontario. And if you don't know where that is, that's okay. Many people are not aware of where that is. But my guest is very aware of where that is. His name is Elias Dummer. Um, You may recognize his name from... Uh, his his band, the City Harmonic, um, which is is now RIP technically, but um, he is not resting in peace from music in the least bit, and he's got some new stuff going on. So please welcome to Overflow Beyond the Music, Mr. Elias Dummer. Hey hey, how's it going, man? Good man, how are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. Well, you know, as good as anyone can be, it in this in this day and age. Absolutely. Um, it, it's funny to me that you're you're in Franklin, Tennessee, or like Thompson Station area. Uh, Nolansville, actually. Yeah. Nolansville. Well, okay, so technically, technically Brentwood, but like kind of right on the line. Okay, so like we lived like 15 minutes from each other, and I we know. never hung out. Like it's super weird. Yeah, <laughs> it's funny. It's yeah. How long? Average, how right? long? Where were you guys? Uh, we were in Madison for the first year, and then the second okay, yeah. year we were in Franklin. Um, and everyone, if when I say that we lived right by the Chick-fil-A and Target on the South End, everyone knows exactly where I'm talking about. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. So yeah, we, 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 have a, we had a friend who lived up in Madison for a while. And uh, 
It's funny, like when you're, I think every city does this, but there's like certain neighborhood, like in Hamilton, it wasn't quite like this. You just drove all over the city to see whoever. Yeah. But I feel like in Toronto, you don't leave certain areas to go to other areas. In yeah, Na- exactly. In Nashville, you don't leave certain areas. To, there's like a, a psychological barrier somehow between like Cool Springs and Franklin, and it's four minutes down the road. I know. And you know, you know who the worst at that was? And I'm going to throw him right under the bus, and we'll probably clip this for a little segment. <laughs> but the worst guy for that was Dan Bremness. Oh, really? Uh, I would be like, dude, come on down. We got the pool open. We'll get the grill going, and like the kids can play. And he'd be like, oh man, it's like it's like forty five minutes. I'm like, dude, it's like thirty. And he's like, no, it's forty five. And he would is arrive. He, was he in East? Yeah, he's in East Nashville. And yeah. then he would arrive and go forty two minutes. <laughs> like he would just let me know. Yeah, not even a hello. I was actually, yeah. I was actually, yeah, that's hilarious. That it, it's it happens all the time. I and mean, I have a bunch of buddies up in East Nashville, and it is. It is really hard to keep up because everyone's always touring and you move to Nashville thinking you're around people. And the truth is it, it can be hard unless you live in the same part of town outside of work to like really feel connected. So you end up making lots of friends that have nothing to do with music and then like seeing your music pals, you know, for the most part for work. It's yeah. Not so what I kind expected. Of end up planning like a trip. Like, so living in Franklin, um, do you know Nick Baumhart? Uh, only a little. Yeah. Okay, so I worked at a, his studio, which was on Music Row, and it was like a little demo studio as part of a uh, country music publishing place. Yeah. And like this this publishing place, like they had legit, like they had Rascal Flats and Dan and Shade mm-hmm. Cuts and all that stuff. And, mm-hmm. uh, but it was a great little studio right on Music Row. But, you know, if you're going to go down there and work for the afternoon, I'd kind of plan to go see, you know, friends do some writer's rounds or whatever. You kind of make a night of it. Yeah. Um, even though it's only like 25, it's funny because when you go to Toronto, it's like, 45 minutes to an hour to get in and you make a night of it. But some reason you get to Nashville in 20 minutes feels like a yeah. massive commute home. Well, and it's funny too, cause like Nashville traffic is a new phenomenon in that, like it's real bad and they haven't figured out what to do about it. So you end up, you know, if you're not out of there by, I remember I was writing with the guys from Rend collective a couple weeks ago and we were having fun. I mean, I've known those guys a long time. We did our showcase together years and years ago. And so we've been buddies. And so we're riding, having a good time, you know, walking around, getting lunch, DoorDash, whatever. Um, and we're getting close. And just, we're, we're not quite done. And we could push for the extra 30 minutes. Yeah. But everyone was just like, if you don't go now. And I was like, if I don't leave right now, I will be here all night. Like I will never yeah. get home. So the, the, and it's not even a huge distance, really. It's a 20 minute, 25 minute drive from where I live, um, with the highways and everything. And yet if I hit traffic, it's two hours. So it was just kind of not worth it. You know, we, you know, we're, we moved the right to text threads after that, you know, that kind of well, thing. Yeah. And like, I think when you, I mean, my move was, I think it's like tin roof there, right on, uh, tin roof on Demombrian. Yeah. Kind of in the, on the, uh, on that side would have like $5 chips and queso and like $5 yeah. quesadillas between like three and seven. So I'm like, eh, yeah, I might just wait at the traffic a little bit. Yeah. And go watch totally. some sports highlights and grab some food. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. That's a good move. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it got less and less frequent. Um, when, uh, bedtime became a little harder with the kids. <laughs> yes. As you can relate. Yeah. Yeah. We have five. So it's now the, the oldest two, we're not really doing as much of a bedtime routine anymore. I mean, our oldest is 14 and nearly, nearly six foot. 
Um, but our, our youngest is five. We've got a five, a nine, and an 11-year-old. Um, and they're all still kind of liking the bedtime routine. And, and they like dad to do it. So I try to, you know, I have enough, I have enough leftover, not, not guilt is too strong a word, but it's probably an accurate one. But I have enough leftover touring guilt that if I can be home for dinner and bedtime, I will, you know? Yeah, that's a weird thing about it. And my wife and I were talking about it last night as we were talking on the phone just with someone. And um, we had it on speaker. We were just kind of like all jumping in and just talking. And uh, it, it's a weird thing because when you're home, you're, you're home. Like you're home all day. Like you can go have a one o'clock ice cream run. Right. And but then when you're gone, you're like gone, gone. Right. Yeah. And, and some couples, balance. some couples are really, really good at like, I mean, I think it's just preference almost. Like I know there in our band, there were a couple guys that would be on the phone with their wives, like seven, eight times in a day. And like really kind of, it almost felt like they were with each other the whole time that they were out there. Right. Um, and that's just Megan and I were never big on phone conversations that way. So like when I was out, we would make sure we connected once a day. We try to FaceTime with the kids or whatever, but it suited us better to not have 18 million phone calls in a day. And, yeah. and it, it, so, yeah, I totally think that's true for, for us. At least it was when I was away, it'd be like a couple, a couple check-ins. Um, but otherwise mm-hmm. they're in the mode. And then when I'm home, it was home. It, nowadays it's different because I don't tour very much anymore. I don't, you know, and I'll play out and do conferences and stuff like that, right. but um, not doing anything like what we did with city. Um, and, and it's, it's just a different thing. I mean, I have a church that I'm really involved in. I have a, a couple of business things on the go that I've had for a few years and some new ones. And, you know, I've, I've got a few different hats. And so I essentially work from home and occasionally travel, which is almost the opposite of how it was before where it was, you know, work away. And then when you're home, you're, you're, in your home and sometimes pretending to be at home because your head is somewhere else occasionally. But it, yeah. we, we always found the transitions to be the hardest, you know, coming home and leaving was harder than being home or being gone, at least on the kids. And so and I know, I know a lot of guys like Ali Andrews will talk about that all the time. And so that's, that's sort of a reality that we adapted to over the years and found strategies for and that kind of stuff. But, um, but it was, it was, it's, it's a very different dynamic. And now now it's interesting because almost everybody's been home for a year and a half, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? So it's, everyone's going to have to find a new normal as things start to open up and events start to happen again and that sort of thing. So, Well, tell me a little bit about, because um, I know you guys would, would tour quite a bit. And uh, it's funny, I was uh, hanging out last week with Ryan Racine, who is your mm. uh, um, production manager, tour manager, whatever the title yeah. was exactly. His but, job changed um, a few times, but it was always him. Yes, exactly. And... Uh, and we were just kind of talking about tour life and, and the things that become normal mm-hmm. that, that are not normal. But tell me a little bit about City Harmonic. Um, you were the, the front man, the singer. Um, I know that you've been a writer for many years and uh, worship leader and all those things. But City Harmonic really, really had a, a band feel and really did truly feel like a collective and not just right. uh, Elias dumber and the city harmonic you know like it felt like a true thing so tell me a little bit about how you guys connected and why there was such chemistry uh with with that band yeah i mean hamilton you can't separate even though i didn't live in hamilton for the back half of our career as a group 
Um, you can't separate the city harmonic as an idea from Hamilton as a city. Um, so we, Hamilton had a really unique thing. I know you've heard this story before, but Hamilton had a unique thing where a lot of churches from different denominations were very practically working together. Um, so I'm friends with Tim Day, who was sort of executive at the meeting house for a long time. Um, and he, he, he's always said the same thing. He's done a lot of unity work in different cities and yet, there doesn't seem to be a place where uh, ecumenical work, I guess, like where churches working together has taken such deep roots um, that I've come across, and neither had he, than Hamilton, where you've got cities just literally sharing resources, yeah. sharing their people, co- co- co-laboring in like na- which neighborhoods to plant churches in, regardless of the denomination of the church and all kinds of really incredible stuff. And so that movement had been really our upbringing. We grew up, I was kind of an intern coming out of high school doing youth ministry as that movement kind of found its feet and took shape. And so the City Harmonic was essentially the house band for the student arm of this missional ecumenical movement of churches working together to try to do something about the, you know, Hamilton downtown at that time was, you know, basically the armpit of Canada. So, so was, going, going out to Hamilton tonight for dinner. Oh, there I, you go. I mean, yeah, I'm friend down there for dinner tonight. Things have changed. Yeah. <laughs> but it's, and, and, and at the heart of that really is the church in, in some ways is the church working together and investing in neighborhoods that everyone else was leaving behind. So we, when we formed the city harmonic, we didn't go to the same church. We went to different churches. We were leading worship at a, a college and high school event called cross culture. Um, and we didn't go to a church. So we didn't have like a common church culture to take for granted. We really had a sort of citywide faith culture or Christ, Christian culture more specifically to, to take for granted. And so with the city harmonic, that meant we had to be more like a band, even though we were writing worship songs, we had to think more like a band than a worship team because the setting in which we led worship together was almost never a small local congregation. We each did that, but together we didn't. And so there was always a little bit more creative ambition for us because we knew we could flex muscles that weren't part of our day-to-day jobs, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so that was kind of what we were shooting for uh, and and what we kind of sought to do. And, and there, it was pretty cool too, because we were literally like commissioned by True City, the organization of these churches working together and sent out almost like missionaries to try to help churches come together across the world. And I mean, the better part of 2015, we spent doing exactly that. We went to, we pulled together pastors roundtables, literally the members of the band calling pastors in 17 cities across the U S. Um, so that was a really, really big part of our ministry. And I, I think it bleeds through in our, in our music and our DNA a lot. And, you know, in a lot of ways has sort of meant that we have relationships today. Yeah. Do you, do you miss that? I mean, I'm still in that sense. So, though, as a artist, I've realized the complications of of starting a project on your own, bringing other people into the fold, and then holding the project on your own <laughs> at the end of it. You know what I mean? Where where they they kind of come in for the the ride, and then you know when the bills come in, it's it's you. Yeah. Um, but I do love that dynamic of still working out songs in a room with guitar, bass drums and like even have the bass player goes yeah maybe let's play like sub bass on the keyboard so i can add this piano part like i still love the idea of working out songs as a band is there part of you in this season that has 
missed a little bit of that as you're as you're making music now? Yeah, I think so. It, it was it's interesting because I think age plays a factor there too. Like when we first broke, we were old enough that we weren't music kids. Like we had mortgages and kids and houses and all that. Um, so there was a lot of pressure for each of us because we were all basically quitting our real adult jobs to, to do this thing. And so we all had a lot in it. So those first two records were really exciting and there was like tension and all the things that make for a great record. Right. But then the next two records didn't have the same urgency because Mm. we were an established thing at that point. Right. And so the dynamics were different with each record that we made. Um, but I, and, and my role and my, like how heavy handed I tended to be, wavered from record to record and that kind of stuff. Um, and so it, it, I'd almost have to point to like, like if I think of one record that was the most like positive and just, you know, all that would be the EP. And then I have a dream was one where, you know, our producer came up to Toronto. We did a house studio in Oakville and we were just basically locked in a room until that thing was done. And that brought with it, all the good, the bad, and the, like, we were friends and had been friends for years and years and years. So there was no risk of us, like, you know, falling out over it. But there was moments on that record where things got, you know, a little heated. So we were, we were, it was, and, and that was fun. Like, I look back and I think, I think really fondly of that process. When you're a solo artist, there's no one to do that with you. Even if you have a producer that you work, work with and friends that you have cutting on the record, it's, at the end of the day, you're the boss, yeah. And that, that's a totally different dynamic. Um, and I do, I do kind of miss that. Uh, but it's also fun because I think listeners expect really different things from a band. Cause they, I think they think of a band as an institution and I don't know that they think of a person as an institution in the same way. Yeah. So an artist can flex muscles and try different things and, and kind of make one record to the next be quite different Whereas if U2 puts out another Zeropa, I'm mad about it. Well, it's funny you said, just said U2 because maybe this is an unpopular opinion. But you could find a guy, probably a college student, dress him up to look exactly like The Edge. Yeah. And he could play exactly like The Edge. You wouldn't even know he's missing. Yeah. But you would have never created the Joshua Tree without The Edge. Right. And nobody comes to see U2 for the – like you know what I mean? It, you can't create – the thing you can replicate it but yep. you can't create it and and i think that that's the unique thing is that you you don't get that kind of thing without the edge playing the parts he's playing and then you know forgive me for forget his name the bass player going i gotta fill in these gaps this yeah. way now because of that and then bono yeah. doing his thing like you know it's it's the parts that come together the interplay yeah which yeah. i think i think i think is more necessary when you're younger is what I guess what I'm thinking. Yeah, it's like shaping. As, it as shapes you, you. As you get older, I think players are more apt to cooperate and collaborate and just do that anyway. Mm-hmm. So like if you go out, if I go out now and I'm taking out players that are in their you know mid to late thirties or you know, it's just a different experience because if they're a if they're a touring player and they're still working in their late thirties or whatever, like that's a person who doesn't really have that much to prove. And so they're happy to kind of come along and let, and serve the song because ego sort of comes out of the bag a little bit, you know? Um, And I think that's really important for working together. And, and, and sometimes, especially in worship, and this is true for churches, it's true for bands. It's funny. You mentioned the bass player in you too. Like I know there was this joke 
about Ringo Starr once upon a time. I think it was John Lennon, but it could have been McCartney. I'm misquoting, I'm sure. But um, where he was asked, you know, what it's like to be in the what's it, what it's like to be in a band with Ringo Starr, the best drummer in the world. And he said, excuse me, I, I, Ringo Starr isn't even the best drummer in the Beatles. Um, and so there's this sort of like thing about dynamics and interplay, which is really interesting because sometimes like you too, if the bass player was not dry, I think his name's, his name's Adam, uh, Adam Clayton, Adam Clayton. Yep. Um, if, if he wasn't driving straight eights half the time, which anybody who picked up a bass guitar could do, right. It would be too much. They would lose some of that grounding, like you said. Right. And so there's almost this, like we, sometimes we think every player has to be playing at their max. And the reality is I think that sometimes a sound or a dynamic or a feel is, is defined sometimes by the player's weaknesses or by the band's weaknesses as much as its strengths. Like I think my piano playing is mediocre. I can play fast, but that's not all that impressive. And so there's this sort of like, I would lean into octaves in order to make room. And we sort of created a space so that we could make a sonic wall together instead of each of us doing that. But that became a bit of a sound for us, a certain style of piano that had a, really nothing to do with me being a good pianist and everything to do with like doing what I knew how to do in a way that made room. And that was kind of all it was, you know? Well, that's the funny thing is like when you go and you look at a tour lineup, yeah. you see a solo artist, and he's usually got like players that are playing far below their potential. But then you see right. bands that are huge, like, or huge, they're big, they're bands, and they're a band band. And you yeah. want, and like the guitar player is saying, oh, I'm, t- I'm terrible. Like, right. Like, and there's like, but there's rare exceptions where, you know, on any tour they're on, Steve Augustine of TFK is the best drummer on the tour. Like, or, right. Or pretty close to it. Like there's right. those odd situations where there's just true music. And but the, on the other side, like they're never fully showing their skills. But then there's these bands that show their skill, and you can man, they're musicians so talented. But it doesn't seem to translate all the time. Yeah, and, and well, and it doesn't click. And that's I think it's like a Tom Jackson thing. He talks about that a lot. I think it's true for worship leading too. But if any band, if you're making music for other musicians first. You know, I think you're going to struggle commercially. And I, and I don't think that's selling out. I think it's recognizing that like any, you go to, I think of, you know, playing in a club when I was 17 and I would sit at the back of the room unless, unless it was my really like my scene, you know what I mean? Like it was the bands that I love, the people that I love. If it was just random bands on a bill together at a club, like everybody, all the other bands are at the back of the room with their arms crossed. They don't want you to, they don't want you to kill it up there. They're thinking about what they would do differently. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that can even be true in Christian music and in worship music where you appreciate certain things about it and you might love it. You might try to turn that part of your brain off, but it's still there. And so I think it's important for almost every band that wants to make a go of something to look at the room and say, these people right here who aren't just like the peanut gallery, that's who I'm here to serve. And if you're leading worship, it's like, Hey, I'm looking for the guy. I'm looking not for the musician with his arms crossed at the back of the room. It's the opposite. I'm looking for the dude at the back of the room who isn't sure why he's here at all. The folks in the front row with their hands in the air, they're already here. It's the guy at the back that I'm worried about, you know? Um, so it's, it's, but it's almost always like knowing who you're there to serve. Like this is a moment for these people. Um, and I, and I, you know, if, if you answer that question by saying everybody, I think you're being really dishonest because it's yeah. not 
possible to please everybody. And, and in music, at least it's almost impossible to please musicians. So I, I kind of try not to worry about it, but I do end up in that headspace often enough, or at least trying to make something I love, you know? Well, and you, you talked about selling out and that I go, you know, is a preacher selling out that is like a doctorate in six, seven doctorates in theology, but yet he is preaching the passage in a simpler way so right. that people can register or like a songwriter going like you could write the deepest analogies. Everyone's like, what the heck is he talking right. about? Nothing translates. And so at that point, it's like I, I remember saying this to a musician who was was we we're collaborating. He's part of my band. And I said, look, if you want to make music like that, that's fine. Just mm-hmm. go make it for yourself. Right. But like, yeah. I'm trying to invite this room into worship and and that's not that's not what I'm called to do in this moment. And so, right. yeah, go make those records and go right. and be proud of them yourself. There's something actually very, I mean, people will work on a car that no one else will appreciate or build a shelf that right. no one else will appreciate. But it's 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 all about the work, if I can say right. that. Right, Yeah, Eli? no, totally, <laughs> totally. Yeah, yeah, very well done. Um, yeah, no, it, it, that's true. And I think there's, I've, with City, we did this with my own music. I've done this. Mm-hmm. It's, I, I think it's sort of like trying to figure out the sweet spot of the Easter egg. You know, there's like, there's, there's stuff where, you know, you can flex theological muscles, you can flex poetic muscles. And I, I think really the sweet spot is in figuring out how to and country music does this really well, and I've tried to do this with worship songs. Um, and I'll admit, a lot of worship songs, and I've done both, really struggle to find this balance where there's like layers in a line where I'll try to use a line that can be taken one way or taken another, and both are true and correct. And I kind of always try to insert those things. It's something David Crowder did a lot of, and I was you know always kind of inspired by was to to have a, a surface meaning. And then also something underneath it that if somebody really lives with the music for a while and listens to enough time, they start to see, hey, wait a minute, there's something else going on here. And it kind of becomes an Easter egg, right? Yeah. Um, I've always really been drawn to that sort of thing. It's like an extra dopamine kick down the road and it, and it adds depth to my experience in music. Um, but sometimes we just write songs that are the plain surface meaning and that's good. But sometimes we do it just because we're lazy. Like we use mm-hmm. borrowed phrases yeah. or we're like, well, it's really about something else. Like, no, what what we do when we write worship songs is substantial and meaningful and important. Like we play a huge role. I mean, I, this is maybe a bit controversial, but like I, I argue that worship music like singing together in church. I don't mean the consumption of worship music. Yeah. Singing yeah, yeah. together in church is as essential to discipleship as preaching. I 100% agree. And and the crazy thing is, yeah, we're instructed to sing a lot in scripture, right? And the psalm, the Psalter was obviously the songbook of the church until like 200, 300 years ago. But like pretty much the science is really one-sided on this. You want to look at how people learn. You want to look at how much retention happens from a sermon or a le- any lecture style conversation. Yeah. Um, it's, it's the truth is singing together 
is a holistic experience of prayer that is practically unmatched in terms of inner work and what it does to us as people. Like the the effects of oxytocin on the brain, for example. You know, you, you get a bunch of people singing together, the brain produces oxytocin similar or just slightly less than sex. So now you're talking about a room full of people. What does oxytocin do? Well, it's called the love hormone. It gets people to trust each other. It gets people to feel social bonds. And University of Bonn has shown it also produces altruism. So literally, we sing together. We trust each other more. We feel a, a deeper affinity for the object of our song. And then we leave wanting to fulfill love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. So it's like there's the this actual science of it is insane. And and you know, in this last year and a half, what have we had in in Christianity no singing together? Doesn't that I mean, does that not feel I don't want to get too political or or sure, right. too off the rails on this, but you know, here in Canada, like we're meeting together with 30% capacity, we have to wear masks and we're yep. in, encouraged and instructed to not sing. Right. Um and I just go like, politicians are not that smart, um, and they're not that aware of the power of singing, right? Um, but I, I know of a principality that is aware, sure, right, of that, yeah. and like, and and I can't think of like a more, you know, we got put in lockdown right before Christmas, right, and then you know they're talking about a third wave hitting right around Easter. I'm like, oh man, like. And I'm, again, I'm not trying to say this is conspiracy, but I, I also think that um, the enemy is very aware of the power that there is in singing. Sure, and yeah. And it's, there's a reason why it says that the, the angels in heaven are not um, saying, yeah. um, holy, holy is the Lord, but they're singing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And, and we all join in it. I mean, I think, I think the, so I'll, I'll say two things. One, um, I, I, I am probably not in the challenge the state on whether or not churches should meet crowd. I, I'm yes, I'm I am. Either, I, am really. I am big into the science. I, I think the responsible thing is to do what's best for our communities at large. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think that the challenge churches face, and we're facing this now, is how aggressively. Well, what do, what does those lockdowns and remote video and all this kind of stuff reveal about where our people were really at and how they how and what they valued about gathering? It, it reveals an awful lot. Um, and because I'm really fond of the science, uh, you know, I'll be first in line as soon as it's available to get a vaccine here in the states. And 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 on on top of that, like that whole thing about singing is really interesting because you've got politicians and people who are like afraid to sing at church because of an article about a German choir practice. Um, and, and yet they're out at barbecues outdoors yelling at each other over their kids. So like the reality of the science is that if you're singing with a mask, that's really not that different, you know, than, than talking loudly with a mask, which is what, by the way, everyone in a mask is doing because we can't hear consonants. So either we become silent as a society or we recognize what risks really are versus what they not. And that, and I think that the reality is at the political level, it's an easy thing to point to. They're not driving that home here in the same way in the States at least. But, um, but the States has been a bit, in my opinion, a bit avant-garde or a bit kind of laissez-faire or probably more than Mm -hmm. it should have been in some ways. And most of our Um, listeners here are coming or listening from the States anyways, even though I'm in Canada. And and I would say I have the same approach as you where, and I want to be very clear too for anyone listening, that that I think 
Um, I actually love what Bethel did, where they weren't meeting for a number of months, um, whereas other churches in the city were meeting, and, and Bill Johnson got up and said, uh, we're not meeting because we love our city, and we'd hate for anybody to think anything but that we love our city. Yep. And that's why. And yep. we will meet again, and we will do it in a safe way, but right now, that's the decision to make. And, and yes... Th- being in church ministry, and you're you're in, in uh, a role as well, where you're, we're all navigating this. How do we mm-hmm. honor? How do we honor people? How do we honor perception? How do we honor the government? And how do we still honor God and realize that um, we we are in a in a spiritual battle for for souls and for yeah um, and for freedom in people's lives. Yeah. Well, and I think in in some ways it's a lot like a really long Lent. <laughs> you know, I mean, like we we've kind of have this reality of people unable to do their normal. Right. And so, so what does that give us reason to do? And that's really where, I mean, I'm working on a record right now. that's going to come out this year. Um, and that's really a lot of what I was wrestling with. And I'm like, we all were, it's like, Hey, wait a minute. So we do this thing. Why do we do this thing? I mean, maybe we know the answers, but do our people have any answers? Do I even believe my own answers? You know, um, what motivates me? You know, why am I, I don't know. There's, there's a lot of that. Like it's easy to sort of make a mental career out of something that for me, I mean, I've, I've, that's sort of why I got involved in other business stuff as well. Cause it's important to me to know that my motives are, are, are right and good. And then I'm doing things for reasons that I want to be doing things for, you know? Um, but it's, it's, it's tough because you, you really do have like, what is the gathering for? What does when we get together as a church do that no other medium can replace, you know? Um, And the short answer is communion, public reading of scripture together and the recitation of scripture through song. I mean, and that's, that's, I think where worship music plays a really crucial role in helping us pray in, in an aligned way, you know, and, and not just with each other, but with ourselves, like that kind of sense of a holistic prayer singing does that in a really, really special way. Um, so I, it, as politicized as it is, and as much as it breaks my heart to say this, like we're back together now with masks and, and the congregation's pretty quiet. Like we're not, we're struggling with the same things. And I think many people are, um, and, and yet, I think we press on, you know, I think we need to lean into expecting that wherever we're coming from, God is with us in that, you know, um, that God is with us in our meeting that he can, he, he's, you know, at, in some ways resetting where we've come from and where we're going as the church in North America. And, and I actually kind of think it's long overdue. I, I felt that the same, you know, as we were in lockdown and I was filming uh, worship sets to an empty room. Yeah, which is weird, um, but you know, we we just took the opportunity to do a lot of spontaneous stuff. Where all of a sudden mm-hmm. it's like, oh, I realized the same progression as this song that, and like we w- went into like heart of worship and then like hungry by like all we went to some old school stuff and it was just it was right and mm-hmm. even be moved to tears at times and it reminded me that like worship is between and maybe you can elaborate on this but like worship is this thing between the Lord and I that I want to inv- this moment that I'm having as I'm singing that I want to invite other people into with me and sometimes I need to do things differently to invite people along but it reminded me that that like 
it's it's up and and out. Yeah, and it's 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 vertical and horizontal, not either or. And sometimes totally. I think, especially in churches, when you're doing six services of the same set, it can get a little bit. You can lose that. And yeah. that, that freshness reminded me of, of that feeling again, you know? It, it does. I, th- I think there's, I'd, I'd almost push back on that though. Um, and here's why. It, I think the outcome of worship, if you want to look at it that way, right, is, is discipleship. Right. And so sometimes worship leaders will get into this kind of conversation and hang up about the idea of performance yeah, as yeah, though yeah. The, as though service four, five, six, where you're going through the motions is, in, is inherently bad. You know, um, but the funny thing about that is like, if you look at the etymology of the word performance, right, yeah. it's actually performo. It's a church Latin word and it means to form thoroughly. So there is a sense in, I think, real life where sometimes the habits that we are doing um, are most effective when we are no longer directly attentive to them. Yeah. Oh, I'd agree. And, I agree. And, and, and so in, in a lot of ways, like that sense of repetition and, and serving the room in the moment is not only okay, but a, a good thing, you know, because we are taking on mm-hmm. the person of Christ in the moment. I, I think there's sometimes this tendency um, to see worship leaders as always serving as a lightning rod for the Holy Spirit for the room, mm-hmm. as if like, but... I've, I've rarely seen that not turn into some sort of like egotistical, you know, manifest destiny or something where they're sort of like convinced that every whim they have is the Holy spirit. And, and we all know that's not true if we take a step back. So I think there's, there's this tendency to, uh, C.S. Lewis has a great quote about this, um, talking about poets and musicians and writers. He says where I'm going to mangle it, but he basically says something to the effect of, you know, they're so in love with the telling of the thing that they're, they no longer love the thing itself. Right. And I, and I think that's a really important precaution for worship leaders. It can be really easy. I think to fall so in love with the feeling and the high of the romance of worship, if you will, like that kind of oxytocin dopamine kick, you know, that we stop actually recognizing that what we are there to do is pray with this group of people so that we together, both me and they, not just they, not just I, are having this shared moment of prayer and intimacy with God. And, And the reality is sometimes shepherding means being not a sheep. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so I, I think like when you're leading worship, it, yeah, service fives, I just don't see it as that frustrating that like, yeah. I don't know, I, I guess there can be, I could see it going just being just as problematic the other way. Where I, service I think we're saying the same thing. Like, yeah, because what I'm, what I'm saying is like, when you, when you get into that mode of everything is normal, you, you do, it's, I want to say going through the motion, you're not going through the motions, you're leading, you're, you're bring your sacrifice you you've done the work during the week mm-hmm. but there's that moment where it just it's like you like you fell in love all over again like mm-hmm. that that moment of like you just like you love your wife you kiss your wife you hug her you date your wife but then there's sometimes those moments where you just catch her across your room at a wedding or at like a function you're like holy junk like and it hits you differently <laughs> yeah, right right and and I kind of want to pivot to talking about your record because you as you worked on these other projects and stepped away from city, when you were involved in city harmonic and touring, and I know you're always involved in music, always writing, but it can become, um, 
you know, you, you got two two rights scheduled this week, three rights scheduled, hundred right. songs a year, whatever that is. Right. And when you're not writing for anything, it feels different. Anything yeah. particular. Yeah. Um, what was it like sitting down and, and writing again um, for the second record, uh, for the second volume, yeah. after putting one out and kind of getting back into that rhythm, but then revisiting it now knowing that there, there is an audience that you're writing. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, it's a weird moment for sure. I mean, the work volume one was a bit of like, not, wasn't the point of crisis at all. It was sort of like, you know, okay, well I did city harmonic. Does anyone care if I do anything else? And so out of that kind of headspace came enough in the work and songs like that. And this kind of, there, there was a different sort of urgency, no desperation, but more of like a, does this matter? You know, Um, and also I look back on it and see that there was like certain itches that City Harmonic was never going to scratch that I just had to scratch. And so you do do that, too. And and I think this record is feeling a lot more cohesive. And so much has happened in the last. I mean, you look at race relations and justice. You look at the COVID-19 thing. You look at all of the stuff that's gone on in the politics of the world and its relationship to the church and how embarrassing the church has been so often through so much of that. And, and it's like, oh my gosh, there is so much to say. How the heck do I say anything substantive without saying all of it or, you know, playing into the hands of something that I don't want to play into. And that's, that's really been a big challenge as I do this is it's like, have I written too many pointy songs this time? You know, have I, have I, am I pointing enough at myself? Am I, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, Cause I think worship music, sometimes you read the Psalms and you never get the sense that David is generalizing in order to avoid being specific. Like David never wrote, Hey dude, it was always, Hey Jude. There was a specific, there was a name in mind. There was a thing in mind. There was a feeling in mind, sometimes literally naming a valley or a place or a whatever. So you read the Psalms and they're real, they're human as sacred as they are because, because they are real and tangible. They have places and names and things in them. And so as I set out to write this record, it was a lot more like that. It was kind of, I think it can be really tempting in worship to fall into the tried and true safe bet words. But the problem with that is that they feel ungrounded. And I think if there's anything our prayers need right now, it's a healthy dose of reality, you know? And I think as I look at at worship as a whole, and I I truly believe this, is that um, you know, we need complicated songs. We need songs with six verses. We need simple songs that repeat and repetitive. We need songs that are beautiful musically, instrumentally, songs that are theological. We need all of those things because they all are tapestries. But but right. the real test is, um, and not to ever put the, like, it's an unfair burden and not one we should take, take uh, too literally, but does it lead people anywhere to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if a song that repeats um, like the same old thing, like think about it, like, like he loves us. Oh, how yep. he loves it. You can mm-hmm. just bring that out anytime and it'll bring people somewhere. But like, that is the most basic, like obvious lyric. Right. Repe- repeated on the same four chord pattern. Yep. But yet 
there's something to it. And yeah, yeah, totally. And, 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 and yeah, I mean, this, I'm not afraid of simplicity at all. I mean, I, I wrote a song with a one word chorus, so I, but, but, <laughs> but it's, but it's, it's, it, it, so that's totally true. I mean, there's, there's that moment of, does this help people get where they're, where they're needing to go, you know? Um, but, but I think there's also, it, it, it I think in a lot of ways it's that constant fight for that balance of like authenticity of saying this is coming from a real place. This is for a real people, um, versus kind of pure pragmatism. You know, sometimes as a songwriter, when you're in the discipline of songwriting, it can be really easy to just be like, Oh, I'm pumping on a song today. Mm -hmm. Like I'm going to, and you just do that. You check your box. Right. Um, and so I've, I try to change the process on this record and I've long tried to do this where it's a little different. I'll I'll write melodies separate from lyrics and try to get the feeling right and wait until I have something to say for my own music anyway, before I, the rhythm's good too, right? Like the rhythm Mm -hmm. of just writing all the time, um, as a muscle is, is good. Yeah. um, Oh, that's totally good. I just separate the pieces. So I'm like, I'm like, I'm going to sit down every day and have the discipline of coming up with ideas and I'm going to constantly be curious and taking notes, but the art of like, Oh, this idea, this melodic thing matches this lyrical thing versus this Bible study. I just read, sorry, my kids are just coming in the door, but, um, these three, these things come together and uh, you know, that moment, doesn't happen every time you sit down. The discipline of yeah. sitting down is going, I need to ideate. I need to have a thing. I need to take my notes. I need to write my lines. But the pressure of uh, finishing a song is a different animal, you know? And something that, animals. oh, sorry, here we go. Hey, hon, thanks. My uh, daughter is just delivering an Amazon package. I'm on a call, sweetie. Okay, great. Thank you. I love it. I love it. You get, you get to see the family dynamic. And, and I know yeah. we got to wrap up here. because no, I, no, I you're just good. Wanna... You're good. I want to really quickly um, just just point to the work volume two that you just finished crowdfunding for. You met your goal. Yes. I was following along and, and saw that uh, you met your goal there. And yeah, um, the virtual choir. Just just tell me quickly about that and uh, and then yeah. we'll close off here. Yeah. So City Harmonic always did these like we did Mountaintop where we got a whole bunch of people to upload their videos. Yeah. Middle of middle of the lockdown quarantine thing, I did the same thing with uh, a music video for the song Good, and I just thought it'd be so fun to put that on an actual record, like to get people from all over the world singing. And it's easier than ever to do this. So that's really what we're doing. We're going to set up an upload thing for everyone who backed the Indiegogo project and set up like we're going to build the tracks in a certain way so that they can do it with their headphones and record an isolated vocal. And then we're going to literally create a separate session where we stack them all. And so we're going to have a choir singing on this record from literally all over the world. We've got people in Australia, people in South Africa, people in uh, Latin America, in North America, of course, Europe. And bring it together for this great recorded thing, even in the midst of all that's been going on. So I'm actually really pumped about that because there's this like, I don't remember what music video or photo it was of the Beatles. A lot of Beatles references today, but, um, (laughs) but there's this thing, I I think it was for, Hey, I think it was for Hey Jude. Um, and the Nana Nas where they're playing, there's, there's, he's playing piano and people are just like hanging over the piano and off the edge of the stage. And like the, the line between the crowd and the artist is gone. It's they're one in the same. Um, and I'm obsessed with that idea. I'm obsessed with figuring out what it looks like to, to erase the fifth wall and say, Hey, us here in this moment, we're in us. It's not just me here and you there. The stage is in the way. Let's get rid of that. Let's break that wall and be one thing together. And I, anywhere I can bleed that into the creative process, I will. Mm-hmm. Man, that's so good. And I can't wait to listen to uh, 
the fullness of the project when it's done. And tell me, you know, a little bit about when you expect to be able to release that to the public. Yeah. So I think we're probably going to be dropping our first single. I mean, it's, you know, it's 2021, so you got to do things one at a time. Uh, (laughs) We'll drop our first single in May, June, and then a couple more after that. So late summer, early fall at the latest, we'll have the full record out. And I am very pumped. And uh, the work volume one is already out. And yes, and want, as is the rest volume one, which was a B-sides EP that I was really, really fond of. So, well, I'm going to leave it stuff. to you because I, I always want to know what you want to hear, because typically when you close a podcast with a song, um, you kind of go to the, the most played song or the current single. Yeah. And, and but I always want to hear what what's special to you and what really yeah. is, is a song that you feel like maybe people haven't heard it if they glazed over the gloss over the record. But like you want someone to sit on this moment. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I, it, it sounds cliche, but I, I really am fond of enough. So I'm grateful that the song got the life that it did. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the, I did <laughs> that EP, the rest volume one had a whole bunch of weird musical muscles on it, which I'm really fond of. Um, there's a song, a time to dance, which is like this weird alt grunge disco thing. Um, which sounds very strange and is, uh, it's literally a disco song inspired by Ecclesiastes. <laughs> But, um, so that's, that's weird, but the, probably the, the song that hits hardest for me from that first album is, uh, called the work. It ain't easy. Um, it's kind of one of those lyrical things where I, it's pretty earnest and, and kind of out there, um, in, in, in a sense of like laying it all out there. And, and I'm really fond of that. So that's, those are the, probably the three that I'd, I'd check out. Well, I think here's what I'm going to do. We're going to play enough coming into this podcast and then we are going to play, uh, the work. It ain't easy. Awesome. Right now. So awesome. That's perfect. This, this is Elias Dummer here as my guest on Overflow Beyond the Music. My name is Josh McCabe. Go check out his uh, his two EPs that are out, The Rest and The Work. Go also, um, and when it's available, we'll make sure to put it on our socials to get The Work Volume 2. This is The Rest, or sorry, The Work, <laughs> It Ain't Easy, right here on Overflow Beyond the Music. You've no expectation that when all the work is done That I'll have done it on my own With a helping hand I found on my own heart For me the hands of grace are pierced with pride It ain't easy for the self to die Well, I felt like I wanted to say goodbye one more time, and uh, I can't thank you enough for listening to this podcast, for being part of this journey. Again, my name is Josh McCabe. It's been a blast hosting this podcast, being part of a great season here. I'm really excited about what God's going to do next, uh, both in my own life and through Overflow Ministries Group, and I'm excited about what God is going to do in your life as well. Please connect with me, Josh McCabe's on Instagram. But this is me signing off. My name's Josh McCabe. This is Overflow Beyond the Music. There's no expectation that when all the work is done, I'll have done it on my own. With a helping hand I found on my own arm. It's hard to say not my will, Lord, but thine. It ain't easy for the self to die It ain't easy for the self to die
So here's my resurrection, you will always be enough Of every expectation that when all my work is done You'd have done it on your own With loving hands we nailed a wooden board of grace will pierce so I could find it ain't easy for the Christ to die.